You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from MMAJunkie.com, the newly redesigned MMAJunkie.com. That's right. It's Ben Folks, ladies and gentlemen. Ben, the uh, the new website looks pretty good, I have to begrudgingly say. You're damn right it does. What? What do you? What else did you expect? Well, I mean, just usually when when people try to redesign their website, it comes out looking bad, and it flubs up on the, the first launch. I know, I know, uh, no, I, I'm really pleased with this redesign because I usually, you know, and it seems like a kind of a given in the internet world that a website will get redesigned, all its readers and fans will spend a couple days, if not weeks, bitching about how much they like the old site better, uh, and then they'll totally forget. That there ever was a different look to it, and they'll just accept that new redesign. Uh, and this one, though, I feel right out the gate, is looking pretty awesome. Yeah. And I don't know if you've noticed, but at least so far we've been promised no more of those annoying survey ads. Okay, so you just preempted my next question, and that would that was going to be if I have to lie about the fact that I'm not going to be buying a new smartphone soon in, in order to read the articles over there. Wait, so are you going to be buying a new smartphone? Man, that's none of your damn business, <laughs> MMA junkie. No, I, from what I'm told, the survey ads are, are dead, uh, hopefully forever, and I haven't seen one on the new site so far. So, yeah, we're, I mean, trust me, we would all like to never, ever uh, have to answer whether we've ever heard of some kind of travel insurance company. We all want that to go away. That's that's right. No, I mean I liked it. It's got the uh, cool like Instagram type effect on the pictures at the top. You roll your cursor over there; it shows you the first uh, paragraph of the it's story. So, so delightful when you old people try and figure out technology. It's I tell you what, make it look like the YouTube. <laughs> ben, this week's music on the Co-Main Event co- podcast comes to us from podcast listener Till Breidenbach and his band, The Sugar Bombs. Uh, he's been on the podcast before, I believe, um, but th- this is a different band. So if you like what you hear from them, you can find their music for free or for a small donation, if you so uh, see fit, at sugarbombs.bandcamp.com. And we, of course, will put the link for that up on the website when, when we get this episode posted. Has anyone double-checked to make sure there's not also a neo-Nazi uh, band called Sugar Bombs? Don't know. That but... sounds like a, you know kind of a good bet. You think? Yeah. You think that a rough, tough neo-Nazi band would call itself the uh, Sugar Bombs? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe it translates to something weird and just Polish or something. That's possible. That's possible. Uh, as usual, this week's co-main event podcast comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, Vitor Belfort became the first man in history to knock out Dan Henderson this weekend. Just a 36-year-old man who suddenly looks like a teenager again, winning every fight by head kick knockout, doing stuff nobody's ever done before. So, you know, normal stuff. I see where this is going. And in round number two, UFC 167 is this weekend, is another legend of the octagon about to get dethroned. And in round number three, Tuesday of this week marks the 20th anniversary of UFC 1. So we're going to kick our shoes off, pour a couple of drinks, and find out what Chad Dundas and Ben Folks remember, if anything, about 1993. I didn't bring any socks. All that plus Master Tweet Theater. Are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. You're not wearing socks underneath your Crocs over there? 
No, man. Would I look like an idiot? <laughs> look stupid. Uh, the first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jay Bradley. He writes, so Tony Pettis is hurt and his fight with Josh Thompson has been postponed. Shouldn't, if his rehab lines up with Pettis's TJ Grant get the shot he was promised? Does that make too much sense? Or is this a case of two wrongs don't make a right and the UFC should stick with Thompson rather than taking away another promised shot? Hell no, Jay Bradley. They should go straight back to TJ Grant if that makes sense timeline-wise. First of all, can we agree that I like referring to Anthony Pettis as Tony Pettis? That's that's a cool thing to do. Yeah, no, I'm into it. Yeah. At first, I was I was going to go pretty Tony Pettis, right? P- pretty Tony. Yeah. Oh, okay. And we do know that Chad Dundas, if, if nothing else, is enamored with the, the clean-cut, sharp look of Anthony Pettis. Just looks like a young champion, doesn't he? <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure pretty Tony is like either an R&B singer, maybe, or a rapper. It's an existing artist. Sure it's not a uh, neo-Nazi group? Again, I bring up the same problem with Pretty Tony as I would have with the Sugar Bombs, that I'm not sure that a neo-Nazi group would want to uh, go that way. How about an ironic neo-Nazi group? That could be. I don't know that neo-Nazis understand and or are into irony. Okay, here's the thing about the actual question, though. Uh, Because like you, I was like, yeah, hey, that could work. Like, if it works out timeline-wise, TJ Grant was supposed to get that fight anyway. I don't know. I feel like you... You might be messing with things one too many times there. You know, it's just going to get kind of stupid after a while. Well, it's already stupid, man. I know, I but mean, I mean, like, it's, it's going to get stupider if what, you go back to TJ Grant. I feel like I let's think, keep it like at it, a certain level of stupid. I feel like it gets less stupider if you go back to TJ Grant. Like Josh Thompson must have known. He must have known deep in his brain's heart that he, he kind of toppled head over heels into this into this. uh lightweight title shot just out of luck more than anything else i don't see where he would really have an argument if you were like well the bout got postponed so now we're planning to go back with the guy who was supposed to get the title shot originally and plus if you don't do that and tj grant is hanging around being well and whatnot uh after you've urged him to go get well and told him quote unquote the belt's not going anywhere uh how do you with a straight face look him in in the eye as a man and say tj not this time, brother. We're still going with Josh Thompson. Still going with the punk. We already had the posters made up. Sorry. Well, first of all, you're kidding yourself if you think that just because it would make sense, that would keep Josh Thompson from complaining about it. You know he'd probably blame it on gay marriage or something anyway, or the damn socialist. He'd find, you know, he's not going to be happy about that, even if it does make sense. Like, he, he would still complain about that. Uh, but, I don't know. I mean, I feel like uh, at this point, I just want to see... A fight happen. I want to see Anthony Pettis defend that lightweight title. I guess I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be too upset if they decided, okay, it works now with TJ Grant. He can go ahead, get his, his shot on. Uh, and then Josh Thompson can get his turn to see the, off in the, the wings somewhere and wait for his turn. Sure, whatever. And, and maybe there would be some kind of like cosmic justice at play there. Uh, I just, let's just hurry up and get a fight done. Can we yeah, do, that? Do, do we have any information yet about the severity of the knee injury? When I uh, looked earlier this morning, it didn't look like there was a lot of intel on that yet. Because I feel like if, if Anthony Pettis is going to be out for a long time, then maybe it's more justified to totally hit the reset button and go back to TJ, TJ Grant. Like if he's, if he's out just a couple of weeks and gets right back in training, then maybe I guess you could justify sticking around with Josh Thompson. Yeah, I don't know. And for him to pull out of this fight in the first place, I feel like uh, it's got to be something – fairly serious pretty tony is is not one to to just pull out for nothing you know 
Uh, second question this week comes to us from Mark Dashall. He writes, so Tim Kennedy did what he was supposed to do tonight and knocked out Raphael Natal. So this email coming to us last Wednesday. Uh, now Dana White says Tim's next fight will be against a big name. Quite the turnaround for a guy who just a few months ago seemed like he might get the axe for his comments regarding fighter pay. What do you guys think? Is Tim Kennedy's ceiling at middleweight? Well, first of all, he was supposed to get a big name for this fight. It was supposed to be him and Leota Machida, remember? Right, right, yeah. So, so it's not as if that would be something totally crazy if he fought something. Like, for instance, he's campaigning for that Bisping fight. Uh, Bisping says he's going to be out till the spring, I believe. And Tim Kennedy says, you know, he, he might be willing to wait for that. I think that's an awesome fight. And uh, that one kind of sells itself, you know. And you know both those guys are going to do the, the work promoting the hell out of that one, yes. too. Yeah, they've, they've already begun, yes. I believe. Uh, no, I, I agree with you, and I think that that I think as we've said on the podcast before, Tim Kennedy seems like a likable guy, a guy who uh, at times doesn't seem to take himself overly serious, a guy who's smart and outspoken, and and definitely says what he thinks both both on the uh, social media and during during interviews. So I think that he is an easy guy to root for. Uh, you could possibly say maybe he lucked out a little bit here uh, with Leota Machida getting yanked out of this uh, uh, fight that he was supposed to be in with him and then being replaced by Rafael Natal because, as it turned out, even though Natal was, uh, looked competitive during the first couple minutes of this fight and landed some solid leg kicks, uh, he, he pretty much walked right into a, a fadeaway left hook there by, by Tim Kennedy and got knocked out. As for what Tim Kennedy's ceiling in the division is, you know, we've talked about him a bunch on this show as a guy that, that while you don't think that he's like an automatic title contender, he's a dude that it seems like not many guys want to jump up and fight. And I think it's because of, of the toughness and the fact that he's technically really sound. You have to, um, you know, you, you have to come into his, to a fight with him with your own game pretty tight and, and knowing that, uh, you're probably going to be in for a long one. Uh, that said, I'm not sure that I would pick him in a fight against Bisping to me. A fight with Michael Bisping seems like the kind of one where Bisping just does what he always does and kind of picks a guy apart on the feet and probably ends up winning a decision. You know, that's an interesting point. I, I don't know. I think that would be a really close fight and a tough one to call. I think that, well, they're all close when Michael Bisping's involved. That's right? true, but I mean, especially if you can get Cecil Peoples in the uh, in the judging chair, <laughs> as we found out this week from that awesome Cecil Peoples YouTube video. Yeah, that was pretty great. Uh, I feel like one of the things with Tim Kennedy, like you said, that you know, you guys have to have their own game pretty tight. You know finishing him is going to be tough. You know he's not bad at anything, uh, and yet also not super spectacular at anything. There's no like one thing that you have absolutely got to be sure you're ready for going into a fight with Tim Kennedy. I think uh, uh, you could kind of say the same about Bisping in a lot of different ways, especially now. Uh, but I think the thing about Tim Kennedy up to this point has been that sometimes in those big fights – He's maybe lacked a little bit of a sense of urgency. Uh, and, you know, I think that's that's the kind of, like, mental block maybe that if he can get over that, I think he's trouble for a lot of those dudes in the division. And I, I might be tempted to pick him over Bisping. Well, these next two questions, I guess we're going to answer them together because you emailed me earlier saying maybe we could do a combination of the two. Well, they seem kind of similar. Just like you just want me to I don't, like mix them together, even though they're by two different people. Do you want me to just invent a fake third person? That read this... both questions with a, a short pause in between. Okay. And then we'll go from there. All right, it's well, not the, that hard. The first one comes from uh, Evan Whitmore. He writes, do you think the UFC should stop associating so closely with the U.S. military if it wants to be taken seriously as a global corporation? I know the military probably fits well with the UFC's target demographics, but as a Canadian fan, I often find my eyes rolling when the UFC promotes the military. 
Short pause. Second question from Rob Terwilliger. Would you, I would like to hear the CME's take on having people punch each other in the head to raise money for traumatic brain injury. And why wasn't the Iceman on the card? I can take the first part of this question because he's retired. I mean, that's, that's, that's the last part of the question. Oh, yeah, yeah, the last part. Although, hey, man, we did get uh, Yoel Romero on this card who went in there straight up Iceman style, poked his opponent in the eye, and then started <laughs> throwing uh, left hook after left hook until he won by knockout. And then, if I'm not mistaken, after he won by knockout, he went hang loose, gave us a hang loose sign. So very Liddell, a lot of Liddell influences there being thrown around. But then he went and like thanked God and stuff. Not terribly Liddell. No, yeah, he he probably didn't go to a wild coke party after or whatever. <laughs> well, okay, the I think it's interesting to talk about these two together because for one thing, I had not considered that element about the the UFC's close association with the U.S. military. It seemed to me, I mean, just as an American, I guess you just kind of you get used to like pro sports leagues. Like, oh man, of course they all support the troops. Everybody supports the troops. Eh, don't you support the troops? Are you an asshole? You got to be an asshole if you don't support the troops. Like, you know, you hear that stuff over and over again. And so you're just kind of like, okay, so this is your thing to show that you're going to do, you know, once a year or whatever to show how all into the troops you are and how they're the real warriors and all that stuff. Uh, And I guess I didn't think about how that would play in other countries, especially now that the UFC is really kind of pushing its global reach, you know, not just how it's going to play with Canadians, but also, you know, Brazilians and you're going to Poland and all this stuff where, you know, the UFC really wants that global fan base. And so I could see now how some of them are like, yeah, we're not that into your, you know, supporting the troops and blowing shit up uh, kind of association. And then also when you see like, okay, for us, we assume like, oh, you're doing this thing to promote, to, to help uh, research and to help uh, returning vets who have been wounded in, uh, you know, our various wars. Okay. That sounds like an awesome cause. Like it's actually, regardless of what you think of the USC or anything, you know, that's obviously doing something good, I guess, unless you're from one of the countries where you're like, Hey man, you guys go off and start wars and blow yourselves up. And then you got to get uh, private corporations to help fund the dudes who've been blown up after it's all over. You guys don't take care of them yourself. What the hell? I guess I didn't think about how that might look to other countries. Yeah. I didn't think about it either. And I think that it's an understandable point of view. Although, wish a motherfucker would try to explain that to the UFC because <laughs> I can just imagine the verbal tirade that would ensue uh, if if some foreigner tried to accost the UFC president with that particular opinion. The thing about it is, and you mentioned this, it's just such an unbelievable slam dunk PR-wise for almost any company in America. It's really a layup, really, for them to, to do a benefit show for the military. Like, you know, WWE does one every year where they go on a tour overseas and they go to, you know, they try to go to forward operating bases and places that... Uh, that that entertainers don't normally go. Uh, And so for the UFC, you've got that going for you where you want to do a benefit show that almost no one in the nation can argue with. And then you start to consider the fact that uh, the UFC and the U S military are such an insanely easy sell to each other. Like uh, you go and have these events like this last week in the one in the small aircraft hangar at, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And, uh, the soldiers are all super fired up to be there. And the UFC fighters are all super fired up to be performing for them. And it just seems like unbelievable, uh, an unbelievably good fit. And then you go out and, and because of maybe that mutual, uh, eagerness to please a bunch of dudes end up getting knocked out, which happens on every single fight for the troops show. Uh, and that does, 
bring forth a certain level of irony so that you're there to try to raise money for a traumatic brain injury while guys are suffering head trauma there in the cage. Although, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, it's a benefit fight show. What are you going to do? Right. Right. But I guess it also does make you wonder. So this is what we're doing to take care of returning veterans who it's at least implied our government is not taking proper care of uh, because otherwise, how many times did we hear during that show? Hey, this is a moral responsibility we have to these guys when they're coming back. And not that I disagree with that. It is a responsibility we have, but I would think the responsibility would fall first on the people who sent them off to get blown up. Uh, it kind of highlights like, hey, why aren't they the ones you know, funding this stuff? Why, why do we need a benefit for that stuff? But then it also makes you wonder, what about the dudes who are suffering brain injuries at the benefit fight? Right. Where what's going to happen to them, you know, 15 years from now when they're no longer on the UFC roster, uh, if they come up with some brain injury type stuff, which is, you know, totally reasonable to think that that's going to happen to some pro fighters, uh, even some MMA fighters, uh, you know, it, are we going to need a benefit for the be- guys who fought on the benefit show? Who does that? Maybe, U.S. government? Maybe Canada? The, maybe the military? Yeah, maybe Canada. Step up, Canada. Who watches The Watchmen, Canada? <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you've got a question, comment, concern that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in the future, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, we are going to roll right into round number one. Ben, I think there was a general feeling headed into this fight that Vitor Belfort was going to do what one CME emailer referred to as, quote, some messed up Hulk shit to Dan Henderson on Saturday night. Uh, That's awesome. At UFC fight, fight Night 32. Still, I don't know if anybody thought it was going to be quite this easy. I mean, uh, Vitor Belfort lifted Dan Henderson off his feet with an uppercut and then pounded him on the ground with a speed and ferociousness that was very reminiscent of his 19-year-old self. And then, for a third straight fight in a row, ended things with a head kick, which, man, I don't know if anybody's ever done that before in the UFC. Three straight fights with a, with head kicks. Uh, at this point, I don't know who could still be buying this, but is it time to call bullshit on Vitor Belfort's career resurgence and testosterone therapy in general? Well, I feel like we have been very willing to call bullshit on testosterone testosterone replacement therapy in general, uh, and there's no reason to to stop doing that because one of the dudes is just kicking everybody upside they damn head. Uh, Here's the one question for me that really sums up the whole Vitor Belfort situation. Could he have done this without testosterone? Yeah, that's the the exact question I was going to ask. Well, and I feel like that that one, it traps you. Yeah, absolutely it does. Because if you say yes, then he ought to get off the testosterone yeah. replacement therapy because it's overshadowing his achievements. Yeah. Why Why do it if he could do it without it? Um, if he couldn't do it without it, then that's even worse. Like you're saying that, okay, 
this awesome stuff that this guy is doing basically comes out of a syringe or, you know, he's, he's clearly working hard in the gym and he's got good technique and all that stuff, but, uh, it's these injections he gets of a substance that most other fighters in the UFC aren't allowed to use that enables him to get to that next level and to be this awesome fighter. In which case, man, we should all feel bad about watching that. Yeah, and the th- one of the things about that particular line of reasoning is if Vitor Belfort or any of these guys, Dan Henderson included, like suffered from legitimate, legitimately cripplingly low testosterone, they wouldn't have been able to be professional MMA fighters in the first place. No. You know, if Vitor Belfort says that he's been on uh, TRT for three years, if we do the math and, and, and ballpark it and say he's been on TRT since 2010, uh, does that mean that... 2009 version of Vitor Belfort was competing at a professional level in mixed martial arts with like chronically low testosterone. Because if you ask any legitimate doctor or most legitimate doctors, at least the ones we've heard from in this sport, uh, if that's possible, the guys who aren't directly in the business of trying to sell people testosterone prescriptions will almost always say hell no no like if you suffer first of all they say there's no such thing as quote-unquote normal testosterone that it decreases naturally as you get older and if you are a guy who does have some sort of disease or disorder where you have really really low testosterone you're like 98 pounds and you can't get off the couch like you're not in there knocking out matt linland you know what i mean right and see that's the thing is like you said if we ballpark it and say 2010 is when he started using it because he said he's been on it for three years uh, that means in 2009 when he knocked out Matt Lindlin and knocked him out bad. I don't know if you remember that one, the affliction. Lindlin was out I there. I do remember. That was a pretty bad one. And then uh, came back to the UFC also in 2009, September 2009, and knocked out Rich Franklin. So you're telling me that that was Vitor Belfort fighting while suffering from a severe, chronic, naturally occurring uh, testosterone deficiency. Because I don't buy that, man. There's just no way. There's right. no way that that's true. Um, okay, if you're, if you're not telling me that, then the thing that I think that we go back to with, okay, people will say, it's legal though, right? Like, the rules allow for this. If you sign up, do the paperwork, get your doctor's note, hey, this is the way it works, man. You don't have to like it, but this is, these are the rules, this is the way it works. And I feel like that's the tiniest little loophole that lets guys like Dan Henderson and Chael Sonnen uh, and Frank Mir and those guys slip by. Like, we all suspect that this is bullshit or that at the very least that you're kind of gaming the system and you're getting away with a little something here. But damn it, it's the way the system works, so there's only so much we can say about it. I feel like the thing that makes it so much different with Vitor and that we always have to keep reminding everybody of is that this is a guy who has failed a, a drug test for steroids before. He got popped before. So there's no way... Like, that... That element of doubt that he may have done this to himself by cheating, that should be enough. There, I don't see why, even if you're the kind of person who thinks, hey, some of these guys legitimately need testosterone and it's unfair and it's discriminatory to those guys to not allow them to use it. I, w- I don't see how even those people would be against a rule that says if you've ever tested positive for steroids, something we know that can harm your endocrine system and can give you chronically low testosterone after that, uh, if you've ever been popped for it, you should never be able to get a, a testosterone exemption because then you just become a methadone dealer. Like, I, I think that that who can object to that? Well, and one of the strangest things about all of this is that 
all of the guys who are on TRT, Vitor Belfort included, but they all, by the very nature that they sign up for the testosterone replacement therapy roles, that becomes the one defining topic in their career. And what it does is it casts them in this very strange catch-22 situation where they both need to make the case to us that this is something that they absolutely need in order to continue to make a living, while at the same time convincing us that it doesn't help them. You know right. what I mean? They're all in that position where, like, I'm certain if you asked Vitor Belfort or Dan Henderson or anyone that night of the fight, do you feel like TRT helped you when you were in the cage tonight? They have to say no, because if they say yes, then that starts to make them look like they're on a performance-enhancing drug. So it creates this weird catch-22 situation. But to me, I mean, you just look at Vitor Belfort, and you know that this is obviously not the same guy who uh, had been kind of up and down throughout the the most of the rest of his career. And, you know, we talk about how he looked in 2009, knocking out Matt Lindland, knocking out Rich Franklin. The point is, Vitor Belfort was always a good MMA fighter. Yes. Now he is a fucking amazing MMA fighter. And frankly, there's no professional sport in the world where guys suddenly get amazing at 36 years old. It just doesn't happen. Well, you know, I feel like he should be the one feeling that he's being robbed of something here because of the t his own testosterone use. Because, like you said, I'm sure Vitor Belfort tells himself that he is doing this through hard work in the gym and through God-given ability. Uh, he's putting it all together. He's finally figured it out. And now he's going in there with confidence and just, you know, putting his shin on people's skulls. Right. And, I'm certain and, that's true. I'm certain that's true. <laughs> you know, so if he does believe that, then I would think that you would want you would not want there to be any doubt about that. You would want to prove to everybody that you are doing this, not, you know, your doctor, not the pharmacist. You are the one being able to, to go out there and finally live up to that promise of his early career. And the fact that obviously this isn't going away. I think maybe he hoped, Hey, this is a, a fad kind of topic. People are going to talk about it and then it'll die off and they won't really bring it up that much anymore. And I could see how he might look at guys like Chael Sonnen or Dan Henderson, especially, and be like, Hey, that's how it worked for them. People talked about it. You know, it was a few headlines and then it's over. But man, the, the more people you're kicking in the head, the more people you knock out, the better you get, the more it becomes the story about you. And I think Danny Downs brought up a, a really good point in our uh, trading shots column this weekend, where he said, look, People who complain that Vitor gets an un unfair uh, share of that criticism. Why does A-Rod get the most of the you know, steroids criticism in baseball? Why did it? Why did so much of it fall on Barry Bonds when there were a bunch of guys in that steroid era? It's because the guy who was doing the best and who was the most prominent guy up there, like that's the one who's going to draw all the attention. That It only makes sense. That's the guy who seems the most relevant as, if we're talking about somebody who's using and uh, gaining an advantage from performance-enhancing drugs. Yeah. You know, one of our emailers this week, Dan O, who emails the podcast frequently, brought up a point that I hadn't considered before but i thought it was right on where he was like you know who this guy looks like he looks like alistair Overeem, and like i thought for a second and i thought man that that's absolutely 100 percent right he actually looks in much the same way like alistair Overeem looked when alistair Overeem was fighting only overseas yeah. traps coming out of his ears had, yeah suddenly had like as someone put on Twitter, the vascularity of an 80s professional wrestler and <laughs> and was just eating everybody's lunch. And I saw, also saw on the Internet someone had like a side by side weigh in comparison of like how Belfort used to look at 185 and how he looks now, or I guess maybe 205. Uh, and it was like 
the exact opposite of what has happened to Alistair Overeem, where we have reason to believe that Alistair Overeem now competes without uh, testosterone advantage. And the, the difference in the weigh-in photos is night and day. And it's the exact opposite when you see one with Vitor Belfort. Now, suddenly, he looks as ripped as he's ever looked and as fast as he's ever looked and as powerful and ferocious as he's ever looked. And, you know, because of all of that, all of this stuff that surrounds him. It's strange to me that at this point, the UFC apparently has so bald facedly embraced the idea of this quote unquote new Vitor, uh, and about how he's in the words of the, of Dana white fucking awesome. Yeah. And uh, how they will talk openly on the broadcast about how he's never looked better and how, you know, he's in such a good place. Now his timing is perfect, et cetera, et cetera. But at least on the UFC broadcast, they also won't mention the fact that he's on TRT which to me is a little bit telling because they will always talk about everything else that a guy does in his training. They'll be like, Oh, he got this new striking coach. He trains at altitude. He's sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber or whatever. And yeah, if that's got some crystals, be, they're dangling crystals over him if, while he sleeps. If that's going to be your attitude. Why not then also talk about his TRT? Right. Well, you know, and I think the, the UFC's approach to this, especially when it, the TRT thing with regards to Vitor seems to have changed a little. It used to be, you know, when he first started coming up and and this current run first started, I feel like there was a little bit of a hesitancy on the part of the UFC. When, and Dana White made that comment yeah. when he first kind of changed his mind on TRT that, hey, uh, I think that some guys are using it as a loophole. I think some guys are using it to cheat, to get their levels way up during camp, and we're going to test the shit out of those guys. And he made reference to like, hey, you shouldn't get in there you know, looking like a bodybuilder if you're telling us that you're only using this to get back to normal testosterone levels. And it seemed at the time, he didn't say Vitor's name, but it seemed like he was talking about Vitor yeah, it was at largely that assumed that he was talking straight to Vitor Belfort when he said, we're going to start testing the shit right. out of you. And now that, you know, Vitor's on this run and is apparently a huge superstar uh, in Brazil, uh, and it's looking like he's headed straight for a, a middleweight title clash, now the attitude seems to have changed. Dana White was singing a very different tune in the post-fight press conference. That's where he talked about the people talking shit about how Vitor won't fight in the U.S. and how it's ridicul it would be ridiculous if the Nevada State Athletic Commission wouldn't license him to fight there. Uh, and you know, had a lot of critical things to say about the Nevada Commission and just basically said, hey, he can fight there. I don't care what Keith Kaiser says. To me, that's a tactical error for a couple reasons. Because yeah. now you've put this... The Keith Kaiser hears that stuff. And Keith Kaiser, you know... He doesn't – he's got some self-respect. He doesn't want to think that you know Dana White is telling him what to do, who he can license, who he can't. He's already said, I don't see Vitor getting a, a, a therapeutic use exemption from us. So now, if Vitor ever does go fight in Las Vegas, and that pressure is going to mount, uh, now you put him in a situation where he has to go before the, the commission. If they give him an exemption after saying they won't, after him testing positive there before, then you've made you know one of the – basically the commission of record in the U.S., look powerless look like you're telling them what to do which is not good for the ufc and it's not good for them like you want there to be at, at least the appearance of a strong government regulator remember the ufc is regulated by the government you want that you 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 need that to you need them to at least appear to have some credibility now if they don't give it to you if you force them into the situation where keith kaiser feels like in the commission feels like we absolutely have to assert our independence here. We can't let it look like Dana White's telling us what to do. We, and we're, it looks like they're already tightening up on TRT in general. Uh, then you've put it on the official record that, you know, he, you've had him go before this commission and they've, they've said it's in the books. Now Vitor Belfort does not need testosterone. Then what do you do? I mean, that, that seems like a, a situation where 
if, if you have to go before the Nevada State Athletic Commission now, either way it goes, it's going to be bad. Yeah, and you know, it's been a mixed bag for the UFC, really. And it was just a couple of weeks ago that we were sort of giving them props for how they handled uh, the Ben Rothwell situation and the Robert Drysdale situation about how it seems like they're trying to discourage young guys from getting on TRT. You went on the, uh, the, the conference call this past week and asked Dana White if that was the case, and he said yes, absolutely, especially uh, with young guys because young guys don't need, it, don't need it. And I think that that's all like positive steps in the right direction, man, but it just seems seems like uh uh for whatever reason they've decided that that Vitor Belfort is uh, a guy that they want to go all in on in terms of promoting him as as number 1 middleweight contender and from where I'm sitting it just seems like a tremendous risk for the fight company it just seems like do you really want a guy that the all of the stories about this guy and a great deal of the media attention about this guy and a lot of the fans uh, of the sport are going to look at this guy and think that he's a cheater. Do you want that guy to be number one contender and or do you want that guy to be champion? Because to me, that 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 seems like it could be a real public relations nightmare and really negatively affect the UFC's business in a way uh, if, if it gets to that level. Um, and, and to me, like, if I were Dana White, and which of course I'm not, and he obviously knows more about this stuff than I do because he's the boss of the UFC, but like, I would come out and say, look, man, we're uncomfortable with this. We are uncomfortable with this guy's testosterone usage, and we're not going to give him a title shot until, uh, you know, he either gets off it or we, we prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that, that he's not gaining an advantage from it. Well, the thing is, his Dana White's maybe best defense that he likes to offer up for this is when people say, hey, why is Vitor keep fighting in Brazil? Why won't he fight in the U.S.? Why won't he fight somewhere with a uh, reputable athletic commission? Uh, and his argument is, hey, you know, look at all we've done for this sport regulation-wise and the, you know, the caretakers we have been of this sport. Do you think we would risk all that by doing something like that, by just, just for Vitor, just to give, you know, my buddy Vitor uh, an edge? Do you think that we would go through all that trouble and risk all that for him? And, you know... When I hear that, I think, yeah, no, no. I, I think you, of all people, ought to realize what a huge risk that would be and how potentially damaging. And I hope that you wouldn't do that. But the more we see you doing what looks exactly like that, the less confident I am in that. Especially because the UFC, I think, sometimes overestimates its ability to craft the storyline, shove it down our throats, and have that be the end of it. And the one that we're hearing now is... The reason Vitor Belfort fights in Brazil over and over again is because of TV ratings. He's huge. Globo loves him. Globo wants him. And Glo what Globo wants, Globo gets. I mean, of course, that would make you wonder, well, wouldn't Globo rather have Anderson Silva or Junior Dos Santos when he was heavyweight champ? Like, if they can just call their own shots, it seems like maybe Vitor would not be the absolute top guy they could ask for. But whatever. Say it is. You know, that the the fact that we've heard that explanation offered up so much and so readily lately like you mentioned when we were watching the uh, the weigh-in show how many times did daniel cormier mention hey vitor super popular here that's why yeah. he's fighting here he mentioned so popular it two or three times within like the minute that it took vitor belfort to get his clothes off and get up <laughs> right. on the scale and that when i like i said to you that was the kind of thing where it was like they're saying this so much that it almost seems like they don't like we shouldn't believe it yeah it, it is a, a protest too much kind of situation. Nobody was asking in that situation. They're, they're throwing that out there and, and keep trying to, to stay so consistent on that message that we all just buy it. And I mean, if you look around at the headlines after this, it doesn't look like people are buying it and yeah. it's not going to change the next time he fights. If he goes out there and he beats somebody, you know, whether it's for a title or not, 
it's it, the same thing is going to happen. I think the UFC at some point has to realize either you're going to read this story over and over again and it's only going to get worse or you're going to have to do something. And this is the chance to do something and to, to really show that, that you're serious about making sure that guys aren't getting an advantage. Right. Well, and if it turns out that it's Vitor Belfort against Anderson Silva for the middleweight title, I would not be surprised at all if that goes down in a pretty big stadium down there in Brazil somewhere. So I guess we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. The truth is, you can't make any plans until Anderson Silva and Chris Weidman have their fight because that's true. You know, we don't even know who the champion's going to be. So there's that. Um, anyway, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. He's he's going to come in here and lead us in another rendition of Master Tweet Theater. So we're going to get started with that right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show, friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am looking European. You are you are looking European, but not the good kind, no, I have to no, say. No, the bearded Cossack kind. Yeah, no, that's not the kind of European anybody wants. Uh, well, for those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel's going to read us off some tweets. Maybe there will be a theme that'll be just barely plausible. Chad and I are going to do our best to guess. Uh, Sir Nigel... Is there a theme? There is a theme, sir. Oh, good. And the theme is existential dilemmas. Oh, boy. Well, I feel like that theme could have been applied to pretty much any edition of Master Tweet Theater. But, uh, you know, whenever you're ready, go ahead and hit us with the first one. <clears throat> Let us begin, yes. <clears throat> Tweet the first. I want to be a vampire. Fuck! Life just isn't fair! <laughs> okay, I guess that is kind of an existential dilemma in a way. Uh... I'm going to say Joe Benavides. Good guess. I guess I'm going to go Miguel Torres here. So we're we're thinking it's a little fella. (laughs) That's all we agree on. Both fine guesses, both likely to be bitten on the neck, and both wrong. It is, in fact, War Machine. Oh, well, see, that was like a kind of a swerve right there. That was kind of a swerve. Well, I guess our our mistake maybe was in assuming that it was supposed to be funny on purpose rather than funny accidental, which is uh, War Machine's... uh, uh, genre, I guess. The terms accidental and on purpose mean nothing to War Machine. <laughs> I guess we could have asked if fuck was in all caps. Was it, Sir Nigel? Was you know, it, in it all is caps? not. Oh, it okay. is the end of an ellipsis. Fuck! Exclamation point. Oh. Well, it could be that War Machine's getting better at this. Or his uh, definitely smarter than him girlfriend wrote it. Hmm, that could be. Maybe she hacked him. Yeah. <laughs> Easy to hack. <laughs> War Machine. <laughs> All right, whenever, whenever you're ready, go ahead with number two. Tweet the second. I'm not a product of my circumstances. I'm a product of my decisions. Stephen Crowley. Sorry, Stephen Covey. Who's that? I don't know. Probably Stephen Crowley's less talented cousin. <laughs> Chad, do you want to go first here? Well, that could be anybody, right? I mean, just a quote from somebody. I guess, I guess it could be anybody. Someone who's struggling. This is a hint. Well, I don't think it's Dan Henderson because I don't think he reads quotes and or retweets them. <laughs> you go first. I don't know. Who All right. This is. I'm going to say that uh, this is a sneaky way of getting the poet Philip Baroni in there. That's what I think. Interesting. Uh, I'm going to go off the grid a little bit. Go Tito Ortiz here. What do you think? That's not bad, actually. Hmm. Both fine guesses, both well-grounded in test-taking strategy, and both wrong. Damn it. It is Rich Franklin. 
still a product of the circumstances of unsuccessfully opening a Jamba Juice or whatever it is he's doing. Do we know for a fact that his juice, his juice joint is unsuccessful? I've been following the juice joint on Twitter, and the last I heard, he was waiting for permits in California. Wasn't that like a couple months ago? I believe it was, sir. So wait, do we think that Rick, Rich Franklin is struggling just because of this Jamba Juice enterprise? That is my theory, yes. I don't think it's actually a Jamba Juice. No, no, it's a Franklin Juice. Or I'm going to say that that was a bad hint. Hmm. Yeah. Really threw me off the uh, off the trail there. Yeah, you know what? If we can't be good at this, then let's let's blame it on the person administering the test. The test is culturally biased. Okay. Well, we always do blame it on him. Okay. Frankly. <clears throat> are, are you saying that you do not think Rich Franklin is struggling at this time? <clears throat> <clears throat> Tweet the third. There are no two stronger human emotions than fear and love. They're not so different, really. They'll both make you do some crazy things. <laughs> I got this one actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll go first then. Yeah. I was gonna go poet Philip Baroni here. So. Well, you're wrong. It's Randy ah. Couture. It is. It is Randy Couture. Yeah. I saw that one when it went up, uh, and it 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 caught my eye. I'll well, say well, that. You know what? That that's just like startlingly autobiographical. You know, it seems like Randy Couture's Twitter is, it's not, the, it doesn't jump out at you like the poet Philip Baroni's, you know, or, or War Machines. It's not like openly ridiculous or awesome, but uh, it's kind of a sleeper pick, I think. Yeah, you know, and you know, he's been showing up more and more here in uh, Master Tweet Theater. Yeah, and, and as we've seen, he will tweet at your ass in German. Yeah, and we might, so I guess we might have to add him to the heavy rotation of our guesses pretty soon. I mean, I guess we might as well now that uh, Sean McCorkle's been banned, right? Banned for life. <laughs> Never going to hear from him again. I can guess what he's saying right now. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. Dear God, I asked to help Philippines. Help you. Pray. What? Dear God, I asked to help Philippines. Help you. Pray. Dear God, I asked to help Philippines. Help you. Right. Is that all? Is there any punctuation in that at all? Uh, a small amount, an unusual amount of capitalization, actually. Dear God, I ask you to help Philippines! Exclamation point. Help you, dash, capital P, pray, dash. Okay. I mean, I think I got a line on it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Go ahead. I would go Vitor Belfort, but I think that his English is better than that. So I'm going to go instead... Vanderlei Silva. I was going to go Vanderlei Silva. Well, you know, we know the Philippines uh, hit with a, a typhoon. Is it a typhoon or yeah, a hurricane? Typhoon. typhoon. Uh, so it's pretty bad over there. Uh, it does seem like a non-native English speaker. I'm going to go... Fuck, I really wanted to go Vanderlei Silva there. Can I go Vanderlei Silva too? I guess. Fuck it, Vanderlei Silva. It is! Yes! It is Vanderlei Silva! Two to one. Ben to Chad. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, all I had to do was piggyback there. Hmm. That's a, a strategic move on my part. Well, after you saw me work it out, after I sleuthed it yeah, out. right you worked here. it out all right. You really worked it out. From a test-taking strategy standpoint, this is our finest Master Chief Theater. <laughs> you guys are like second-generation immigrant children taking the SAT. <laughs> <clears throat> tweet the fifth. Uh, okay, so this tweet is tweeted at two people. So take this into account in your guessing, because I think it may surprise you. Are you going to tell us who the two people are? Yes, I will. Okay. At Phil Baroni, at War Machine 170, oh. let's get a crew together and let's do a camp on Maui. I have a sick spot to train. Mm. Wow. Okay, so somebody 
is trying to get War Machine and Phil Baroni together to train in Maui. It's already it already sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, not a prostitute. I will give you that hint. <laughs> uh, Kendall Grove. That's an interesting guess. Uh, I'm going to go Chris Lieben because he also oh. lives in Hawaii now. Oh God! But he come on, Chris Lieben. He's trying to hold his life together, man. He doesn't need those two coming in there like a hurricane and wrecking whatever good work he's doing. I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to try to guess these correctly. Oh God, I really hope that's not it. Sir Nigel? Both fine guesses. Only one man interested in holding his life together, and it is the other, Kendall Grove. Oh, what? It is. Kendall Grove just going to fuck up everyone's life by putting these two people in the same room in Maui. You know what? But maybe the way to think about it is he is saving Chris Lieben <laughs> from having to have his life destroyed by him by just kind of taking that bullet for him. That's interesting. I, I like that. I think that's the only way to view it. Well, uh, Chad, I think we can we can safely assume this is the most dominant performance of any one is person in Master Train Theater. That was five. That was tweet oh, the you fifth. Stumbled set. ass backward into that one too. Three to one for Ben Scarf Choke Folks over Chad Stranglebar Dundas. Uh, oh wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna feel good about this one for a you while. Know, a guy goes to a jujitsu tournament and doesn't get a medal, and the next thing you know, he starts keeping track at Master Tweet Theater. <laughs> Well, I look forward to our uh, in-house jiu-jitsu tournament here at the CME Podcast any day now. Uh, Sir Nigel, I guess this is the part where you tell us what you're doing with your, your sad, sad life. You know, it's, it's funny you should begrudgingly ask, sir. <laughs> I've recently begun shooting on a new film about an inner-city math teacher who teaches his students the joy of learning before taking them on a camping trip where they all suffer brutal psychosexual violence. It's called Stand and Deliverance. And what role do you play? I play Rand Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Well, Chad, now we transition from talking about the UFC's recent past to talking about its very near future. This weekend in Las Vegas at UFC 167, the welterweight champ George St. Pierre takes on Johnny Hendricks in what, at least right now, feels to me like maybe GSP's toughest fight in years. What I wonder is, are we just talking ourselves into this because we're ready for a shakeup at the top of the welterweight division? We're ready to see some new blood in there or at least to see GSP really face a challenge? Or is this legit? Is Johnny Hendricks the guy to really give George St. Pierre a kind of challenge he hasn't seen yet? Well, I think he's definitely a guy who can be a really tough challenge, maybe his toughest challenge yet, like you said, uh, just because Johnny Hendricks comes in with with uh, really, really good wrestling abilities and, a, and good wrestling credentials and also has the power we've seen to knock guys out with one shot on the feet. Uh, and if, if George St. Pierre has had 
a weakness in, in his game, you know, dating back to years and years now that he's been the champion, it's that we have seen his chin get tested before. You know, we saw it when Matt Sarah beat him back at UFC 69 all the way back in 2007. And then, you know, much more recently at UFC 154, we saw Carlos Condit kick him upside the head and, and it seemed to put him on Dream Street for a little while. Although St. Pierre, you know, did a great job recovering, obviously came back to win that fight via unanimous decision. But we've seen... Johnny Hendricks knocks so many guys out that, you know, this seems like it could be trouble for George St. Pierre if, if Hendricks is able to put one of them big old Christmas hams on his, on his jawline. So I think that it's a dangerous fight for GSP. I also think that it's hard to pick against GSP in the welterweight division at this point, just because he's been so dominant over the the last several years. Um, I think there's also some momentum behind this fight because we just saw Anderson Silva lose, you know, a few months ago. I think that there's this, uh, this spirit in the air that it might be a year of the upset in the UFC. And, you know, these things oftentimes do seem to take on a momentum of their own where it seems like, uh, you know, both of the UFC's unbeatable champions got beat in the same year. I think that feels like a thing that that could definitely happen. Uh, is it going to happen? I don't know. This feels like, like I said, a stiff test for GSP. And also, you know, maybe maybe his last real tough test, because if he beats Johnny Hendricks, then I don't know who's up next. Yeah, I guess you got to um, get Damian Maia in there or somebody. But I think you're right in saying that this is a, a, a real tough fight for him. And, and, you know, maybe his toughest fight as welterweight champion. You know, I wonder how much of us feeling like this might be the time when George St. Pierre falls. Like you mentioned, you know, Anderson Silva losing, it does take on this air of, hey, maybe this is the changing of the guard. You know, the era is about to change in, in mixed martial arts. I also kind of look at uh, the way we keep hearing, it seems, more and more about when GSP is going to make his exit from MMA. Whether it's, you know, Faraz Zahabi loves to get out there and make statements on George St. Pierre's behalf, which seems maybe like not what you want your trainer doing. But, you know, he's in the Captain America movie. Uh, he's always had these kind of outside business interests. Maybe he's getting to the point where his passive income uh, is enough that he feels like he can just bow out and let motherfuckers come over and pamper his shit every hour on the hour, as Nick Diaz would say. It does seem like we're kind of getting to that point for George St. Pierre where one way or another, he might not be long for the sport. And I feel like that's a dangerous place for a fighter to be because you got Johnny Hendricks coming up. Man, he ain't going nowhere. He's hungry. Uh, he, he's ready to come in there and, and put one of those Christmas hams on your chin, as you say, you know, that always seems like a dangerous place for a champion to be. How much of that do you think goes into our feeling like this could be the fight we could be about to, to, to witness the, the torch get passed? I mean, yeah, some of it, definitely, especially when you see these latest reports about, uh, I think I saw one about St. Pierre talking to Chael Sonnen about how he does slightly shorter training camps and like how he, uh, how he, he times everything out to, to make it work in that regard. And, you know, I had totally forgot that George St. Pierre is going to play Batroc the Leaper How could you in, the, in the next uh, Captain America movie until Never you just brought that up. Never forget. Uh, but that, you know, that's another good point. Uh, you, we see, <sighs> we see him on these NOS explode commercials and isn't that what he's on? What's he on? Does, yeah, something like that. Sure. Why not? Uh, the, and you know, he's, he's been a guy who's always had, uh, interests that aren't MMA. And he's always been a guy who seemed like the kind of guy that you wouldn't be terribly surprised if he walked away at a, at an early age. Uh, and he's also a guy that, you know, certainly probably doesn't need the money anymore. So I think all of those things contribute to the idea that, that, you know, if, if GSP is going to get caught slipping, so to speak, that it, that it could happen here, especially against a guy as dangerous as Johnny Hendricks. Well, I think we would agree, right? That the, 
the most likely scenario if GSP does get beat by Johnny Hendricks is probably relatively early in the fight. Johnny Hendricks hits him with a left hand. GSP falls down, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, now, say that happens. Say it happens at 3.15 of round two. You know, it's been a fairly competitive and not terribly eventful fight. Johnny Hendricks, one left hand, bam. GSP falls in the exact same spot that Martin Campman and John Fitch did. You know, there's this, that little chalk outline of all Johnny Hendricks' previous victims. Wow, he, this is... He lands right I into I can tell it. you've thought about this. This is detailed. Full full KO, limbs all stiffened out and everything, you know. Say that happens. Anyway, we don't just immediately do the rematch. Anderson Silva, Chris, Chris Weidman style. Chris Weidman style. I know that makes you mad. No, man. You, I think you got to do the rematch, especially if it's... Uh, if it's a reasonably competitive fight that, that ends with Johnny Hendricks winning, I think that when you're the champion for 55 years, like George St. Pierre has been, you, you earn that right to make a guy come in and take the prove it shot. Like they do in a horse. Even they don't do that. Ben folks have never heard of that. Do that. We already settled this. I looked it up on the internet. I was right. You were wrong. That's not how I remember it. That's okay. Exactly how it went down. If, if you see GSP winning, retaining the title, doing his thing again against, against Johnny Hendricks, how do you see it happening? Well, I think it's just like all the other GSP fights, right? Well, there's two he's, kinds of GSP. He, he's going to come in. Well, I think I, doesn't this one kind of shape up as one where GSP comes in and out wrestles the wrestler? Like you know, he's not going to want to mess around with with Johnny Hendricks on the feet just because of everything that we've talked about during the first five minutes of this round or whatever. Like that's not a guy that you want to play games with because he will knock you out real fast. It's it's not you know this ain't Jake Shields. This isn't Josh Kostjak. He's not a guy that you that you want to take the the uh, the chance of jabbing to death throughout five rounds. I think you want to, if you can put Johnny Hendricks on his back and, and try to tire him out as quickly as you can uh, maybe sap some of that strength that, that uh, contributes to those knockouts. Um, and, and you know, that's not, that's not going to be an easy thing for St. Pierre to do either, which is one of the reasons why I feel like this is an interesting fight. Well, I, I'm, I guess maybe that's why it seems like we're all going to be sitting there on the edge of our seats, waiting for his first takedown attempt to see how it goes. Because, it seems like we assume that Johnny Hendricks, you know, he's has such a great wrestling pedigree that he'd be able to shut down GSP's takedowns. But we don't necessarily know because GSP, you know, does have more experience of taking people down in MMA. I mean, Johnny Hendricks definitely wrestled at a really high level and was really successful. But he he doesn't have as much of that, like having somebody come in there and try and take him down in an MMA fight. So it feels like we're we're kind of guessing. We're doing the math and we're saying... Oh, good wrestler, he's not going to be taken down so easily. If you go in there and GSP shoots on his first takedown and puts him down and, and is able to keep him there and then shoots on a second takedown and going to keep him there, I feel like you're going to feel a lot of the air go out of the building where everybody's going to say, oh, okay, so he's just going to do it to this guy too. Yeah, but at the same time, Johnny Hendricks does have that power, you know, so this is going to be one of those fights where I feel like even if St. Pierre is able to come in there and work a good game plan, this will be a fight where there's a lot of tension in the air the whole time, sort of like those uh, long Kane Velasquez, Junior Dos Santos fights, where even when Kane Velasquez is winning, you know at some point Junior Dos Santos could just step forward and knock him out. So I feel like True. there's going to be a lot of uh, a, a lot of tension throughout this entire fight, unless in, you know, unless Johnny Hendricks just gasses out and clearly doesn't have the power anymore, or wins by super early knockout. Either of which could happen, man. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I'm excited about this one. Well, a couple of things I think that are the best thing beside the you know just one punch power that Johnny Hendricks has going for him. For one thing. He, as we saw in that Carlos Condit fight, he does not mind just coming right in there and getting in your face. He doesn't seem to hang around on the outside too much and think about 
what his next move should be. He's always on the attack. Another thing, I, I worked on a, a story about him for our uh, UFC 167 pullout section, shame, shameless plug, uh, that will be coming out this week. And talked to his dad, talked to uh, his manager, and, and, and talked to Johnny. And it seems like one of the things that they all said, and that seems true based on my interactions with Johnny, is that you know he's just not a guy who... Uh, they, they, I think the word was, they said, not free-spirited, but just doesn't really worry about much. Sometimes even when he should. And talking to him about, you know, getting burned on that commercial shoot kind of brought up the same kind of thing, where I think a lot of guys might have freaked out about that a little bit and gotten more pissed off uh, and been more upset. And uh, it seems like with Johnny Hendricks, it's tough to really get that much of a rise out of him. Uh, and that, I think, may work in your favor, because I think we've seen a lot of GSP's opponents come in there. And they're kind of beaten mentally before they get in there. Like Jake Shields talked about it, you know, a huge event. You get in there, you've heard so much about how great this guy is, how he's pound for pound, might be the best MMA fighter in the world or close to it. Uh, he's been a champion for so long. And you get in there and you're kind of waiting to see if that's true. And I don't think he's going to fall prey to that. So you're picking Johnny Hendricks here? Is that <laughs> is that what we're doing? Fuck it, I'll pick him. All right, interesting. Well, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll get out of here before Ben Folks's emphysema causes him to, to perish over there in that chair. My emphysema uh, don't care for your cigar, Chad. <laughs> uh, ben, this week, you know, even though I don't like to do it because I like Kenny Florian, I think he's a good broadcaster. I think he's a smart guy. I got to send my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? out to uh, Kenny Florian this week for jumping on Twitter after the Vitor Belfort win and posting... Not a fan of TRT, but criticizing Belford is getting old. Don't forget that Hendo and Vito were, Vitor were on the, an even playing field last night. First of all, you don't know that. <laughs> Second of all, uh, a user named 703 underscore GT hits Kenny Florian up to say, and TRT doesn't teach timing or head kicks, to which Kenny Florian responds, bingo, exclamation point. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? That's exactly what it does. Even the dudes who are on this stuff admit that the reason that they're on it is because it helps them stay healthy, it helps them stay at the top of their game, and it helps them train harder day in and day out. And if one thing is going to teach you timing and teach you how to knock everybody out with a head kick, it's being able to train much, much harder than you were able to train before because you were on testosterone replacement therapy. It sounds to me like when people say this stuff, like it doesn't teach you how to knock people out with kicks. They're the same people who, you know, 10 years ago were screaming that steroids don't help you hit home runs. Exactly. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Well, Chad, my are you fucking kidding me? Uh, I have to kind of go back a little bit. I, if you'll recall, I sent out recently an are you fucking kidding me to your boy Roger Nog. I recall that. I'm still mad about it. I know you are. Uh, because... You know, right after the UFC announced that he was going to uh, fight Alexander Gustafson, Lusty Gusty, I think it was six days later, uh, Roger Nog announced that he was his his back was injured. He's pulling out of the fight, even though the fight was like five months away. Uh, and I had to send out an "Are you fucking kidding me?" for that because who does that? Turns out, however, that Dana White admitted uh, in Brazil this weekend that they announced that fight without even speaking to Roger Nog. Not only without him saying yes or no, I'll take the fight. But without even getting a hold of the guy to talk to him about it. Just decided we want to make that fight. Eh, he'd probably say yes if he was here. Fuck it. Let's go ahead and tell everybody the fight's made. Oh, wait. Turns out the guy's hurt. And then, even after admitting that Dana White had said that, uh, his quote exactly, what happened was that night we decided to make the fight. Gustafson said yes, and they couldn't get a hold of him, meaning Roger Nog. So I said fuck it and just went with it and announced the fight. And, of course, he's hurt. 
then goes on to say, the fight isn't for four months and he's already determined he's hurt. I don't understand that. The guy is always hurt. Every time you call him, he's hurt. Really? Even after admitting that you screwed it up, you're going to turn around and still blame Roger Nog? You fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? I apologize to you, sir, Roger Nog. I would like to take my Are You Fucking Kidding Me away from you and give it to Dana White. Wow. Are you fucking kidding me? An Are You Fucking Kidding Me retraction here on the Co-Main Event Podcast. That's breaking news. That's never happened before. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, before we get started with round three, do you need a glass of water or anything? Yeah, like you'd give me a glass of water. Well, I can't now. We're, we're doing the podcast. Yeah. I'm so, just worried about you, buddy. You're over there coughing your brains out. Yeah, you look really worried. Anyway, Ben, tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of UFC 1. A lot of people have been doing their remembrance columns uh, this week and last week. I will have one that comes out tomorrow on, on Bleacher Report, provided that I get it done. Oh, uh, cute. I just wanted to ask you, what what's your earliest memory of the UFC? You know, or my, MMA in general, I guess. My my earliest memory of the UFC was uh, I had a friend in high school who wrestled, and he was really into it because uh, because of the success of ground fighting. And he saw it and was immediately like, I have to learn some Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I remember uh, being in high school, and I think I was sick. I think I was homesick that day. Uh, and I rented like several UFC VHS tapes like from the events that had just happened. Uh, and watched them back to back and was like, what does this little guy in the pajamas know? Because that seems like something worth learning. Yeah. That was kind of my first exposure to my it. My editor uh, at the school newspaper in college used to call what uh, Hoyce Gracie did spider fighting. I think that was back <laughs> before we figured out what it was. But my earliest UFC memory, also in in, uh, in high school, uh, a friend of mine came up to me and grabbed me in the hall and said that that – he had something that I needed to see that his dad had recorded off pay-per-view. And so we... Oh, and you you assumed porn. <laughs> I guess I did. Yeah, we ended up uh, cutting class and walking over to their house to watch it. Um, I thought for years, because as you know, I have a terrible memory. Uh, and so I thought for years that it was UFC 1, but I, I you know... I, much later was able to go back and, and look on the internets after that became a thing uh, to, to determine that the first fight that I actually recall watching uh, was Hoist Gracie against Jason DeLucia, which is in the quarterfinals of UFC two. Uh, I remember the dude in pajamas arm barring the guy in hammer pants. That's my, uh, my earliest memory of the sport. Uh, and this week as part of, of all of this kind of flashback nostalgia stuff, the UFC debuted its Fighting for a Generation quote-unquote documentary on uh, on the Fox network. Uh, I know that you watched it. I, I also watched most of it, although turned it off before the last half hour after getting pretty sick of it. Well, in fairness, um, I only watched it because they interviewed me for it, but didn't use a single thing. Yeah, you didn't, I said. you didn't make the cut there. So, yeah, uh, I must have talked about Frank Shamrock too much. Aside from your personal sort of uh, uh, annoyance and... and, and Vendetta? Uh, now the vendetta that They're you have against the producers of this show, what did you think? 
Well, you know, I found the stuff about the early days really interesting. Right. Uh, some of the video footage they had about them kind of talking through the the idea for the early UFC. Yes, I thought the was... early investors meeting, yes. right, where Art Davey gets up and, and tries to interest people in investing in the UFC was, I thought, the best part because yeah. I'd never seen that before. Well, and uh, some of the talk about how they really sold the extreme element of it and that that's what got it in the headlines to begin with, but then also what kind of doomed that early vision of the UFC. Uh, I found that stuff to be really, really interesting. And then I think the, the closer we got to the, the current era, for one thing, you don't quite have the proper perspective to talk about it yet. And for another, there was a lot to cover. Uh, they really took their time with the early days and then kind of had to rush through the other stuff. Right. And I think one of the reasons that that early days stuff was the most interesting on this documentary, not only because it's stuff that maybe we hadn't seen before, but also because most of the guys being interviewed, like Art Davey and Bob Marowitz and some of those other guys, they don't work for the UFC anymore. So right. a lot of it felt like a more straight up account of those early days rather than what you get uh, as you move into the Zufa era from a documentary that is, you know, filmed and produced by Zufa itself. Uh, so like a, a vanity project, in other words, which is not to, to criticize it. That's just, you know, what you call it back in the days of uh, before there was a real alternative to traditional publishing. Like if a dude wrote his memoirs and nobody wanted to publish it, like Roger Sterling did on Mad Men, uh, you, you would pay to have it published yourself. And it was called a, a vanity project. And that's, you know, what these self-produced documentaries that are by the UFC and about the UFC essentially are. It's kind of like if... Uh, LeBron James wanted to make a documentary about the Miami heat and he, he paid for it and bankrolled it. And most of the documentary skipped over the fact that he had previously played in Cleveland. Yeah. Or if, if we wanted like, to uh, make a documentary about the, the co-main event podcast uh, and we conveniently skipped over the fact that we always record with no pants on. That's right. That's right. And that is a hell of an idea. We should produce a two hour documentary about this podcast. Well, and this thing I think did have some glaring omissions. It did. It did. You know? And that's the thing. And, and, and the, these documentaries always obviously look really good, especially now that, 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 you know, they've, they've transitioned over to, to Fox and you got to think that the Fox uh, production team has gotten their hands in there because it's always really well lit. They always do that like cool, soft focus thing on the interviews that makes them look cool. So they're, all, and they're always fun to watch and I don't even mind watching them but at the same time like you said you have to keep in mind like that you're not actually watching a documentary you're just sort of watching a two-hour uh pr piece right like you know brock lesnar gets uh his fair share of treatment frank shamrock uh didn't exist nor did randy couture yeah, really randy couture gets ignored in this thing especially I think the only time we see him is when he's getting knocked out by chuck yeah Liddell, they show right? him get knocked out by chuck liddell a couple times and it's glaring i think especially during the part where they talk about the guys who built the 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 um you know the early ufc they, they talk about chuck liddell they talk about bj penn they talk about matt hughes and it's just like man we're gonna just gonna pretend like like randy couture wasn't arguably the most important guy of that era I mean, well, I guess, you know, and I guess that is one of the things I guess we've come to expect or at least be sensitive to about the UFC that they will rewrite their own history uh, as they get mad at guys or like, you know, then make up with guys. And to be clear, you know, I was kidding about being mad that they didn't use my stuff. I, I'm not really mad because uh, I've done enough stories where I've interviewed people and then you go back and you go put the story together and you realize, yeah, that interview doesn't really fit. As much as I thought it did, I, I would just be putting it in there because I did the interview. And that's the worst reason to include it. So I can understand why, you know, they wouldn't want to uh, include it or they probably just had so much stuff. Plus, you got to get David Spade. 
you got to get David Spade on there, and you got to get Anthony Kiedis looking all sex offenderish with his, his mustache. Well, so, I mean, let's be honest. You're not that quotable. No, no. Like, you no. probably did the same thing in that interview that you do here where you just talk for like four minutes. I was on, talking. You're interrupting me right, right now. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Sorry, Mr. Folks. Let me uh, run but, in and grab you a coffee real quick while you're doing this next. Uh, but one of the things that, that I heard both from the people uh, who, who interviewed me and from other people who were also interviewed and had talked to the production people about it was like, hey, they're really going to get to do it their way. It's not going to be the UFC telling them, we don't want you to mention this guy or this guy. We want you to tell this version of the story that they're going to get to really be independent and tell the full story, which for one thing, the fact that that needs to be said uh, tells you something about the UFC's history with this kind of stuff. And the fact that it didn't come out that way uh, also tells you why that needed to be said in the first place, because we know how the UFC does with this kind of stuff. You know, it's fuck Randy Couture. We're mad at him. And who knows? They might make up with Randy Couture at some point in the, in the future. Uh, and then, you know, if they did a documentary, then Randy Couture would get played up, you know, but no, it doesn't work that way now. Screw him. We're mad at him. Uh, you know, it's like he never happened. Yeah. Uh, that that's a terrible impulse, man. Just tell the, the full story. Don't try and reshape your own history because we're going to notice. Yeah. Well, and one of the ways that these kind of documentaries can <laughs> actually be interesting too, is, uh, uh, that at times they reveal themselves in ways that you're not 100% sure that the producers meant to. And I think that that happened on this Fighting for a Generation uh, documentary when they started talking about the first season of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, and obviously they go into the now infamous Do You Want to Be a Fucking Fighter speech where Dana White shows up at the uh, at the fighter gym and grips everybody a new one and everybody's standing there looking skinny and and shockingly young. So young. Uh, There's a baby faces on there. But but it, as part of this documentary, they included a, a short couple of interview clips, I think, from Kenny Florian and Forrest Gri Griffin, where those guys revealed uh, just in passing that they didn't even know that they were supposed to fight like every week in the thing or whatever. They thought that they were going there, assumedly not to be paid, uh, and that they would film this reality show in the house. And then at the end of it, they would all fight one time. And that, to me, that sheds the do you want to be a fucking fighter speech in a whole new light because, yeah. uh, you know, you go there and you give this this speech, which the dude, uh, the, the ultimate fighter producer uh, actually teared up during this part of the documentary and i believe i texted you yes a, you did a I text message are you fucking kidding me yeah about that's how that i part. knew that chad was watching it because i got a text message that said this motherfucker gonna cry about the are you do you want to be a fucking fighter speech are you fucking kidding me i think i laughed out loud when i got that text message but it, i mean it, it casts that seminal moment in the ufc in a totally different light now knowing that uh, essentially what that speech was, was Dana White showing up and breaking the news to these guys that, no, man, you're going to have to fight every week or, you know, a couple times during this show and you better be ready to make weight the whole time. Not, not like you thought it was going to be, oh, and by the way, yeah, you're doing this for free. Yeah. It basically, instead of it being like, Hey, welcome to the big time. I'm going to tell you how it is. This is how you got to be. It's, it was like, Hey, you know, this thing that you do for a living, you got to do it for free. Otherwise you're pussies and I'll make you look like that on, on TV. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's, and it's that guy's going to tear up over it. It's probably worth watching the, are you the, the fighting for the generation documentary? It's fun to watch, probably worth watching, but at the same time, you know, don't take it as gospel worth watching just for the stuff on the early days. I think. Yeah. Um, anyway, well let's do, uh, just saying stuff this week and then we'll get out of here. Ben, what is your just saying stuff for this week? Well, Chad, I'm just saying, I know that you have long uh, preached the gospel that, you should always cheat in an MMA fight. And Word. we saw some indications this past week in two different 
events why that's the case. Uh, for one thing, uh, in the uh, the Bobby Green James Krause fight, uh, Green gets deducted a point after the second time he kicks Krause in the nuts in the very first round. Then lands one that kind of goes right across the, the the waist there, a little below the waistline. Uh, John McCarthy rules it a legal blow. Clearly, it looks like his ankle at least clips the cup uh, of the already inflamed testicles of James Krause. Uh, Krause goes down in a heap. Green wins by TKO. Uh, I don't know how we can look at that and say that he didn't win after kicking a dude in the balls. Uh, I don't think we, anybody thinks that that shot drops the dude if he hasn't been kicked in the balls twice already. So, okay. That that happens on Wednesday night. Then Saturday night at uh, UFC Fight Night 32, Dustin Ortiz in a flyweight bout, uh, the, the curtain jerker in that one against uh, Jose Maria, uh, kicks him twice in the nuts. Just, you know, not in, in quite such short a span. Kicks him twice in the nuts, is not penalized. Uh, and then in the third round, gets him on the ground and just jackhammers away at the back of the dude's skull. Wins by TKO. I'm just saying, if you don't at least cheat a little bit in an MMA fight, you're not really taking advantage of the rules. Because, man, the rules want you to break them, basically. You almost certainly won't be punished, and if you are punished, you can wipe that out by going ahead and finishing the fight, probably with an illegal blow, and it'll be fine. I'm just saying, cheat your ass off, especially if you're an American who has to win in Brazil. ABC, always be cheating. Just saying. Just saying. Ben, this week the, the, the New Jersey Star Ledger began its four-part series into, the I guess, the somewhat darker aspects of MMA. Uh, we got a couple emails last week from people at the New Jersey Star Ledger, and we sort of ignored them because we didn't maybe understand what was going on. Uh, we get a lot of, of uh, PR emails to the podcast, and whenever someone says that they want to email us because they want to have me come on our show, it obviously means that they've never listened to the show before right, or right. looked at the website. So we end up ignoring those. But as it turns out... And the New Jersey Star Ledger, at least the first part of what I believe is this four-part series uh, about MMA, is really, really worth your time. Yes, it is. Uh, the first, the first part was very well done, very well reported, very well written. Um, I didn't yet get to read the second part, which came out today, but the first one was pretty great. Uh, and I'm just saying, it's worth everybody's time to go out there and read it if you're an MMA fan. Uh, it takes on a bunch of stuff that maybe we would rather not think about a lot of the time, but is nonetheless uh, very important. I think that. You you can find it if you just go to nj.com uh, and look in the sports section for the uh, MMA series. It's worth your time. I'm just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to break down everything that happens at UFC 167. As for right now, though, we're done. We're through. We're out. I feel like my strategy for an MMA fight is pretty solid now. Uh, start with a kick to the groin. Then when the fight restarts, poke the dude in the eye. Then just kind of hope for the best. Well, and I think the best could occur if you're also jacked up on the TRT, which is, you know, falls right into the same strategy because, you know, it's legal. You might as well do it. You might as well just get ripped up on the TRT and then come out there and kick everybody in the nuts. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? You I, I think that's an unbeatable strategy right there. I think that we, we unlocked the, the, the secret. We shouldn't have talked about it on the air. Though. God, just gave was, it away. That was a mistake. We probably just cost ourselves millions. Let's edit this part out. All right. I'll take this out.